0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to this hour. I'm looking forward to every hour, but this one is going to be fun because Jeff Redorn's going to be with me, and he just completed his stellar series on end times, which went fabulously. And I, I said, Jeff, just because you're finished with end times doesn't mean you're off the hook. <laughs> you don't get the <laughs> summer off. I'm here. I know, Jeff. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, well, yeah. So we're going to talk today about the ten most difficult teachings of Christ. The 10 Most Difficult Teachings of Christ, and I think we're going to s- start with the hardest one of all, Jeff. Is that is that fair? It is fair. Um, so I'm doing, I have just finished a
1: class called The Life of Christ, and in a semester, I tried to cover all of the things about the life of Christ from the very beginning until the very end. So we covered things uh, before creation that Jesus was there and the agent for God to be the to create uh, by him and for him and through him all things were made that were made we talked about christ in the old testament theophanies and christophanies there's images of christ in the old testament there's prophecies in the old testament and then of course the birth the life the death his atonement and his resurrection all the way through to his second coming and so on and at one point i wanted to cover all the teachings of christ and it's like, woe is me. How can you ever do all that in a semester? <laughs> well, it didn't. I ran out of time. We're, I think we're going to have to continue it in part two of the life of Christ. But I started collecting these difficult teachings of, of the red letters. You know, the red letters are the words of Jesus in the Bible. So if you have a red letter Bible, those are the actual words of Jesus. And in those words, in those red letters, there are actually a number of very difficult things that Jesus says. I mean, we're going to cover one of them. The second one is when he says, you must eat my flesh. Oh, my. That's a tough teaching. What does he mean? literal or symbolic? Yeah. Well, we're going we'll to talk cover about that, in that in a minute. Yeah. But that's I, not the hardest one. I, well, I so the one I put at the first one is from the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching. And there's actually a number of things in this sermon that are difficult. He says, well, you've heard that it say, do not murder. But I say, don't even be angry at your brother. So now he just equates anger with murder. He says, you know that it says, do not commit adultery. But if you lust, that's basically the same thing. He says, if your eye causes you to, you to sin, gouge it out well is Jesus saying literally gouge out your eye um, he says to love those who hate you to turn the other cheek you can't serve two masters there's a number of very um, shall we say difficult teachings in the Sermon on the Mount but at at chapter 5 verse 48 he says this be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect well even if you thought you could do all the things up to that point, now he says, you know, okay, I'm not angry. I'm not doing this.
0: I'm not doing, okay, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But now he says, be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect. <laughs> There's true. a comparison as well. And it's like, all right, that's it. I give up. Tall in.
1: Uh, you know, yeah. how in the world would it be even possible to be, quote, perfect, end quote, just as your heavenly father is perfect? I give up. Well, we need the rest of the New Testament past the Gospels, right? Past the first four Gospels and Paul's teachings to understand this very simple but very profound truth that when you believe in Jesus Christ, he in what theologians call imputed righteousness, he takes the righteousness of God and he gives it to you, the believer, through faith. Romans says it this way. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How do we become perfect? How do we become righteous to God? We believe in Jesus Christ and he gives us his righteousness. So the rest of the New Testament declares this truth in a number of ways. For example, at the beginning of most of Paul's letters, he says, for example, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae. You know what saints means? The saints is the Greek word word, hagios, and it means holy. He's saying basically to the holy ones in Colossae, Mm -hmm. to the holy ones in Ephesus. You're now holy, blameless in his sight. In fact, that's what Ephesians 1, 4 says, for he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I think the most difficult teaching of all is that Jesus says you need to be perfect, which none of us can ever do, as our heavenly Father is perfect. But he imputes that onto us, his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's number one.
0: So we are perfect.
1: We are perfect.
0: Because of what Christ did on the cross and the grace that we have from him. Absolutely. Nice. Now, the Christian struggle
1: is even though we've been made perfect spiritually, right? Mm-hmm. Are we? Do we act it out perfectly? No. No, we don't. And there's the struggle, right? So that's why God exhorts us to live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, right? Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind, and so on. There's many passages where he says, live out your calling, your election, your
0: holiness. You are you have been made holy. Now live that way. Yeah, it seems, Jeff, when people make mistakes, usually one of the last things they pull out is that line. Well, I'm not perfect. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And spiritually we are. The problem is spiritually. Yes. In our soul, in our thinking, in our actions, we don't live it out perfectly. But that's how God sees us. Thankfully, remember that the Old Testament says he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers it no more. Thank goodness.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. How do, how do we process John chapter 6 in 53 to 55, where he basically says, eat my flesh? Well, he
1: does, doesn't he? So Drink my blood. Yeah. Let's read it, and, uh, and then we'll
0: talk about it. Okay. So
1: in John 6, it says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So the core question here with this teaching is, is Jesus being, like you asked earlier, is he being literal, or is he being symbolic? Now, I think an understanding or a quick survey of the rest of John to see how Jesus speaks of this in other ways will give us a clue to how how we should interpret this. So, for example, in John chapter 4, to the woman at the well, remember the Samaritan woman at Mm -hmm. the well? He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for living water, and it would well up to eternal life. Well, do you think Jesus had some, you know, calfskin of of different water than that's different from the water that was in the well that she was drawing? No, he didn't have any physical water. This is symbolic language using what was around him, the well water, and saying, if you knew who you're talking, I would give you a different kind of water. He was trying to make a spiritual point. He was trying to describe a spiritual truth using the physical things that were around him, water. He didn't have some special kind of water. And the same is true in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Well, Jesus was a person. His incarnation, he came as a man. He was made like his brothers in every way, except without without sin. Uh, Hebrews, I think that's Hebrews. Um, So he was a human being. He wasn't bread. That was obviously symbolic. When he says, I'm the light of the world, right? He was, again, a person. He wasn't light. He wasn't a light bulb. He wasn't a sun, as in a... heavenly bodies, a star shining in the sky. He said in John 10, I'm a door, or I'm the gate to my sheep. Well, he's clearly not a gate. He was using symbolic language. He said, I'm the good shepherd. And in John 15, he said, I'm the true vine. Well, he wasn't a vine. He was trying to convey a spiritual truth using physical objects. He was using symbolism. Mm -hmm. So, based on that, I go to John about the eating of my flesh, and I go, he's just making another symbolic uh, comparison to teach a spiritual truth. Well, what's the spiritual truth that he's trying to convey? That you need to take Jesus in, right? You need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, John 13, 20. If you receive Jesus, you receive God. It's this concept of, I need to take God in, not physically, Through physically eating his flesh. I mean, my goodness, that would make us all cannibals if we had to eat Jesus. And by the way, Jesus is not here anymore. So how could we ever partake of eternal life? Because we don't have the physical body of Jesus. And there's, by the way, there wouldn't be enough to go around anyway. So I am convinced that Jesus was being, was using symbolism to make this spiritual truth. Galatians 2.20 says it this way. I've been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We need to take Jesus in like bread, if you will, but we do it through faith. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And even in John 17, a couple chapters from where we're at right now, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you and I are one. May they also be one in us, so that the world may be believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. That's the spiritual truth I think he was describing by using the
0: symbolism of his flesh and his blood. There's certainly some different denominational perspectives on this, mm-hmm. Jeff. There is the memorialism, which I think is the the view the Baptists would take. The spiritual presence, which I think is the, the Reformed view, and Lutherans would say it's consubstantiation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is the uh, the the wine and the bread are still wine and bread, but Christ is within that wine and within that bread and transubstantiation which is the catholic perspective where they say the bread and wine becomes the physical body and blood of Christ. So there's four four pretty common perspectives here. Yeah, I
1: think maybe one passage to to try to analyze those four kind of views within Christianity because I agree those those are different views. Remember in in Corinthians Paul gives instructions about the Lord's table. And he says, what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you. The Lord took bread and took wine and says, when you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the, the wine and he says, whenever you drink, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So of those four, the first one, you said read the first one again was what?
0: The first one was memorialism. Yeah, so I
1: would agree that the bread and the wine that we celebrate at the Lord's Supper is a memorial. There is nothing spiritual, I don't believe biblically, in the wafer. I don't think any priest or any reverend or any minister can do anything to it to make it change in some way, fashion, or form into something else, either the flesh of Christ— Uh, Because transubstantiation, tough word, basically says that the wafer becomes the flesh of Jesus without appearing to be the flesh of Jesus. Consubstantiation says he's in the wafer because it doesn't look like flesh, you know, and so on. And I just, I don't, it just seems to me that the Bible is clear that we do that to remember what he did on the cross. He gave up his body. He shed his blood for us. And when we celebrate the Lord's table, that's what we are to remember. His right. sacrifice.
0: When we come back, we're going to go to Matthew 10, turn a man against his father, another difficult mm-hmm. teaching of Christ. We'll take a short break. Jeff Ordons my guest. Be right back. is my friend Jeff Bedore, and we're talking about uh, the ten difficult teachings of Christ. We went through a Sermon on the Mount: "Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Eat my flesh. We're going to turn now to Matthew ten. Jeff and the um, the whole teaching of turn a man against his father. Yeah. So let's read Matthew ten, uh,
1: starting in verse thirty-five. Jesus says this, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10. There's a similar passage in Luke 14, uh, verse 26, that says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother... Uh, then uh, you cannot be his disciple. I actually think that a better interpretation there is to love less. The Greek word there is actually misio, M-I-S-E-O. And I, I think a more proper understanding would be to love less. In other words, we need to put the Lord first. And I think most people would agree with that. But what about making enemies of family members? Well, I think this is specifically referring to Individuals who come to faith in Christ and then other family members who have not come to faith in Christ in fact Romans eleven twenty eight says it this way: those who do not believe are not part of God's family and are enemies on the count of the gospel. So remember when Jesus says, "What does light have in common with darkness? so don't be unequally yoked mm-hmm. I think this is referring to not that once we become a Christian, we need to reject our family and hate them in some way. I don't think God's saying that at all. I just think he's he's telling us that when you believe, you may end up being hated and persecuted and divided from your own family members who are not believers. Because Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. When you become born again, you're now on Team Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. That's your first team. And if you have other family members who aren't there, uh, I know people individually who have been rejected by their parents, rejected by their fathers, rejected by other family members, uh, especially if they've come from a different religious background of some sort and their family members are still holding on to this other religious system and they become a born-again believer in, in Christ. Um, I can tell you
0: that this division is real. I, I completely agree, especially if you come from like a Muslim faith. Those individuals, and I've spoken to a couple of them, were written off by their family instantly. Yes. You are no longer my son. I will never speak to you again, basically. Now, from our church, we have family members
1: who have received into their home uh, children of some Muslim couples that are here in the Twin Cities, because when they came to faith in Christ, they were literally rejected and kicked out
0: of their house and had nowhere to go. Well, wow. all right. How about the line from Matthew seven twenty one, "Depart from me, I never knew you." That sends chills down people's spines. It shouldn't, though, not if you're a believer.
1: It it can. Over the years, I've actually had many students ask me about this very passage in um in us in a kind of a state of fear like what if i'm one of those that hear these words depart from me i never knew you oh no can a will a born again christian ever hear these words and i say no
0: a born again true born again believer will never hear these words. So let's look at the passage. What's the difference between a born-again believer and a true born-again believer? You just no, said a true born-again believer.
1: Nothing. I, okay. <laughs> I
0: just, it was Nothing is different. Right. We
1: actually did a whole show on that one. Yes, I we remember. did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Then I will tell them plainly, verse 23, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Well, first of all, if you are born again, God never calls you evil or an evil doer. You're a Holy spirit living in you. You're holy. You'd never be called an evil one. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So that's number one. Number two, Who is this passage speaking to? Remember, context is so important. I mean, for each one of these passages, what we really should be doing is reading the whole chapter, and by the way, the whole book, and by the way, understanding the whole context of Scripture, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because context is very important. But on this one, we can go right up to verse 15, and we can see who Jesus is talking about in this passage. So it says, verse 15, watch out for false prophets, they come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They are the ones who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? The false prophets are the one who are ferocious wolves. It's false prophets who by their fruits you will recognize them. It is to false prophets that Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. If you are born again, Christ knows you. You are written in his book, the Lamb's Book of Life. You are his sheep. He is your shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. You've been brought near to God, Ephesians chapter 2. He's in you, for goodness sakes. So He will, a,
0: a true Christian will never hear the words, depart from me. All right. This is another big one. This comes from John chapter 15. He'll cut off every branch that bears no fruit. Oh,
1: this one, for this one, a little Greek understanding goes a long way. So let me read the passage, and then we'll look at the Greek word in question here, and then we'll analyze it. So John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So here's Jesus using the symbolic language, remember, of being a vine. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. It goes on to say that the branches that are not connected to the vine are gathered up and burned. Well, I think that clearly is a picture of hellfire, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not a branch connected to the vine, you're going to get burned. So the question is, for those who are connected to the vine— if you aren't producing in the, any fruit, will Jesus cut you off? Well, one of the doctrines that we just can mention here, but we won't have time to go into in detail, is the concept of assurance of salvation. I'm a firm believer that Scripture declares that once you are born again, you are born again for all of eternity. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, God says that Holy Spirit will be with you forever, Right? Having begun a good work in you, he will complete it. Having believed you were marked in him with the deposit Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. So one of the most important aspects that we need to understand going into this
0: passage is the assurance of salvation. Okay, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to complete the analysis of that passage uh, right from John 15. Will you get cut off, Right. That's scary. All right, but it's not scary. There's a tease. We'll be right back with Jeff Verdorn. Friend Jeff Doran in studio with me today, and we're talking about difficult teachings of Christ. Ten, ten that he picked, and these would be uh, in your red letter edition. These would be in these would be red words. These would be the <laughs> teachings of of Christ. That's what we're focusing on today. And right before we went to break, we started with that John fifteen passage of He will cut off every branch that bears no fruit. Let's pick that up,
1: Jeff. So is it the core question is here is it possible for someone to be connected to the true vine born again but then be cut off because of any reason for that matter in this case to, for not bearing any fruit well the greek word for cuts off is the greek word airo a i r o and it means actually the primary definition means to lift up hmm now it can mean to lift up and carry away, or to cut off, take, and carry away, uh, or to cut off. But I actually think the best in English interpretation of that Greek word here in this passage is to lift up. If you are a branch connected to a vine, a grapevine, now picture a grapevine here, and you're a branch and you're lying there kind of down in the dirt and you're not bearing fruit, what does the tr- gardener do? He lifts you up he'll prune you a little bit, tie you off so that you might become fruitful. If what what some teach that he would cut you off, what happens to those branches that are cut off? Well, they end up in, in the hellfire. And if you honestly, truly believe in the assurance of salvation, that is impossible. So I think this concept of being lifted up is a much better understanding or English translation than being cut off. Now, God wants us to bear fruit, right? I mean, this is not—remember, how are we saved? How do you get to heaven? How do you get eternal life? Is it by your fruit? Nope. Or is it by your faith? Faith. We are saved by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 makes that clear, right? Mm-hmm. Not by work so that no one can boast. But sometimes we forget about the next verse, which is verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works— This is a little bit what we were talking about earlier. Once God has made you holy, once God has connected you to the vine, once God has made you born again, he wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to live a holy life. But not all Christians do that very well, right? Mm -hmm. So this is about a a believer who's not being fruitful. So he's going to lift you up. He's going to prune you in the hopes that you will
0: be fruitful. Because we're just fruit hangers, Jeff. We don't produce fruit. We hold out and God hangs fruit on us. You know, it goes on to say,
1: apart from me, you can do nothing. So you're right. We cannot produce our own fruit. The only fruit we bear is as we abide
0: in the true vine. Yeah. So we're on the vine and he produces the fruit on on us, on the vine. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you think I got to go out and produce fruit, good luck with
1: that. Yeah, you know, when we try to do it, it ends up kind of being this plastic <laughs> fruit in the bowl, you know? Right, uh,
0: right. That's, that's a great, I appreciate that. All right, let's go to the spit you out of my mouth verse. Where is that, Revelation?
1: That is Revelation three fifteen through 16. This is kind of like the last one. You know, a lot of in Christendom, you know, you hear these teachings of beating the Christian over the head. Well, you better watch out. You know, he's going to cut you off. Well, this one is kind of used in the same way. He's going to spit you out of your mouth. So This goes back to your high school, doesn't it? <laughs> we've talked about this before. I love this illustration because it's... In, yeah. In junior high, my one of my Sunday school teachers put up on the board, hot, lukewarm, and cold. And he said, okay, I want you all to rate your faith. Well, we're junior hires. Yeah right? I, so cold, well, you know, that means kind of unsaved. I don't like Jesus. Well, none of us are going to say that, right? But hot, you know, that's one of those Bible thumping kind of guys, you know, I'm not going to be hot. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I'll, I'll say lukewarm. Well, 20 kids all said <laughs> lukewarm. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeded to turn his Bible to Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And you had 20 junior high kids going, you know, like, oh my goodness, Jesus is going to spit me out of his mouth. Well, what's going on here? Well, first understand that even though these words are in the book of Revelation, these are part of the seven letters to the seven churches in your Bible, if you have a red letter version these words will be in red these are jesus's words to seven literal churches these words were spoken to the church in laodicea well at the church of laodicea they had cold water aqueducts coming in from Colossae. they also had hot water aqueducts or mineral water aqueducts coming in from nearby hierapolis now laodicea itself didn't actually have any well so they relied on these aqueducts coming in Well, cold water is useful, drinking, cooking, so on. Mineral water is also useful, right? Spots use mineral water, bathing, and so on. But if they mixed, if you got a lukewarm brackish water and you were to drink that, what would be your first reaction? Spit it out, probably. You'd spit it out of your mouth. So once again, Jesus is using some of the physical characteristics of his surrounding to describe a spiritual truth. Now, this, so that's number one. The second part of this is remember what my junior high Sunday school teacher said. He said, rate your faith. So almost everybody sees this as a temperature scale for faith. Oh, I'm hot for the Vikings. I'm cold for the Vikings. I'm kind of lukewarm on pizza, you know, and people use it for how much they like something. That's not what this is about let me start the passage again. It says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. This has nothing to do with how much faith you have or don't have. This is a description of your deeds, of your fruit, if you will. And Jesus is saying, I wish you had useful fruit for me, either hot or cold. Now, remember, if this was about faith, and I've seen and read many, many commentaries that says Jesus wants you either all in hot or he wants you to reject him completely, cold, <laughs> but none of this middle ground. Yeah, that makes no sense. It doesn't, does it? And Peter says that God wishes none to perish.
0: Yeah. Jesus wants you to be cold for him? I don't think so.
1: No, I don't either. So he wants you to be useful to him. He wants you to be that branch That is bearing fruit for him. Useful. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, because you are useless, because you are good for nothing, basically, Mm -hmm. what is it good for? Just spit you out of your mouth, Mm -hmm. out of his mouth, just like the branches that were not bearing any fruit and were not connected to the vine were gathered up and burned.
0: So the lukewarm will be spit out of Jesus's mouth. So, Jesus is using the illustration of the cold as a good thing.
1: Absolutely. Because that
0: was useful. Hot yeah. was a good thing. That was useful. I think in this in this uh, passage,
1: being hot or cold are both being saved. It's the lukewarm that is unsaved. It's the lukewarm that is like the branches that are not connected to the vine. So, in other words, there's no such thing as a quote-unquote lukewarm Christian as that word is used in Revelation chapter 3. Lukewarm represents those who are unsaved. Now, just so everybody understands, are there Christians who are carnal? Are there Christians who are worldly in their thinking? Well, yeah. I mean, Paul goes after the Corinthians, for example. He says, you are carnal in your thinking, right? You have sin just like the world is. Um, he goes to the Galatians, Who's bewitched you? Having become in the spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourself in the flesh? He gets after them. We can have friendship with the world as hatred towards God, James says. He says, grow up and no longer be tossed around by the lies of this world. And he's talking to the church there in Ephesians chapter 4. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So can you be born again? and love the things in this world and 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 be attracted to the things of this world and and follow the lies of this world and do the sins of the world? Yes, God calls you out of those things and as a believer you shouldn't walk in those things. But understand, while there can be carnal worldly Christians being lukewarm is in the context of Revelation chapter 3 is being unsaved. The hot is good, the cold is good to God, useful. they're useful to God. Yeah. And that means you're saved in that in that, uh, in this passage. So, if you're spit out of his mouth, you're, you've been rejected, correct? And you're not saved. And as will a born again tr- Christian ever be rejected by Christ? No, no. You'll never be cut off. You'll never say be hurt. You'll never hear the words, "Depart from me, I never knew you."
0: You will never be spit out of Jesus's mouth. All right. Let's move on to Matthew 13, 21. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away.
1: So this one I put in here because it's kind of similar to the last one, or the last couple really. And it's this threat that if you don't act a certain way or live a certain way, you're going to fall away. And generally this is taught That falling away means losing your salvation or being separated from Christ in some way, shape, or form. Once again, a little Greek goes the long way, so we're going to have to look at another Greek word here in this one. But once and also once again, we have to first anchor ourselves on the doctrine of assurance of salvation. That once you're saved, you're saved forever. Once you receive eternal life, you have eternal life for all of eternity. (laughs) So this is in the parable of the sower. And if you remember the parable, there's four seeds. The first seed, which is the word of God, the dirt is man's heart. That seed never goes in, never germinates, right? It's stolen. Not a believer. But the second and the third seeds, the seed lands on the soil, both germinate. In other words, there's new life from the dead seed. There's germination. But then the first one, rocky soil, that doesn't have enough water, and it's withered. The second one is in the weeds and the thistles, and it's choked out, all right? So what does it say that causes this one to... And then the fourth one, obviously, is the one that produces a fruit uh, 30, 60, 100-fold or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's a good one. That's where God wants a true believer to be bearing fruit, just like the vine and the branches, right? Mm -hmm. All right. What happens that causes... This plant in this parable to fall away. It says, When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Well, this Greek word is the Greek word episteme, and it means to fall away or to withdraw. Now, what's the picture? You get someone, maybe they're a new Christian, they're young in the faith, they're now born again, they go to the office and they say, Hey, everybody, I went to this weekend Christian thing, and I got born again. I now believe in Jesus. And they all start mocking them, making fun of him and saying, oh, you're not going to become one of those Bible pushing, you know, people, are you? Persecution comes. What is their response? They shrink back. They wither. They wither. They withdraw. They fall away. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It's the fact that they took their light that they're supposed to be holding out and not hiding it under a basket. No, right? And they took that light and they withdrew. And now with it, what are they doing? They're hiding it under a basket. They fell away. They withdrew. So instead of letting their light shine before men, they are being withdrawn. And that's what I think fall away means in Matthew 13.
0: Hmm. All right. I like that. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. I know this is an interesting one. Go sell all your possessions. Yeah. So the next couple have to do with kind of money and some of
1: these uh, couple of passages that are really tough. Really? Jesus, are we supposed to do this? Are we,
0: do we have to go sell all of our possessions? I think that's the cliffhanger. <laughs> I mean, come on. We're going to keep people thinking, do we have to go sell all of our possessions? Then we're going to find out when we come back from All the right. break. Right. Jeff Verdorn my guest. We're still studying 10 of the most difficult teachings of Christ. This would be in your red letter edition. These would be the words of Jesus. Be right back. Jeff, we have 11 minutes, three to go. Go sell all your possessions. Mark chapter 10. We can do it. Let's do it. All right. So I got to read a little bit,
1: a couple verses from this one. So Mark 10 about your possessions. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? You know the commandments. You shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not give false testimony, not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declares, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing he you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. I think, first of all, I think there's a number of instances in scripture where Jesus answers a question or answers somebody but in a little different way than what we would expect because we, unlike Jesus, don't see the person's heart and Jesus does. I remember one instance, this is, knowing what they were thinking, Jesus said to them such and such, right? And so he can see through the words and look at the person's heart. Now, what about this guy that came came to Jesus? Well, he claimed to keep the whole law since he was a boy, right? Verse 20, he's trying to gain eternal life by keeping the law, which we know is not how you gain eternal life. And was this guy, and I think he was, was he trusting in his wealth? And why would someone trust in their wealth as being a sign from God, that they are favored from God? Well, because that was kind of the belief system of the day. The wealthier you were, the more prosperous you were, the healthier you were, that was all viewed as someone who was more righteous than someone who was poor, who was sickly because of their sin. Do you remember the Jesus and the disciples saw a blind man and they said, Jesus, whose sin was it, this man's sin or his father's? Well, that's because the average mind 2,000 years ago, I would argue even today, people equated sin with The judgment of God coming down on you. So your circumstances, your health, your wealth, your prosperity, and so on, are from God. So this is a guy who's wealthy. He thinks, hey, I'm right in God's eyes. I'm obeying the law. I think there was a pride sense here. So Jesus, knowing his heart, says, go sell all your possessions. Now, can a wealthy person believe and be saved? We're actually going to cover this in the next one, too, in number nine. And of course they can. And is there a requirement anywhere in the New Testament for a believer to go sell everything they have? No, there's admonitions to be generous, to not trust in your wealth, to store up treasures in heaven and so on. Um, so I think Jesus was responding to the person's heart. that he That's what he was trusting in. And I think another way to say this is basically, look, you need to stop trusting in your wealth and start trusting in me. And that goes to number nine, which is actually the eye of the needle. Mm -hmm. Because he says this in Matthew 19, verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, once again, clearly, rich people can believe and be saved just like poor people. But does wealth, make it more difficult for a person to understand their need for a Savior. And I think it does, and I think that's the picture here. Jesus is saying it's difficult. Now, I know that there is a common teaching about this one, about the eye of the needle, that because we know it can't be impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That can't be impossible. And clearly a camel could never go through the eye of a real needle, right? I mean, that's impossible. So here is one explanation that I've heard, that the eye of the needle is really a small doorway in a larger gate of a city. And when someone knocks on the, the big door, they open up the smaller door so that they don't open up the big gate in order to allow maybe a rushing sure. an army <clears throat> rushing in. And while there were small doors in larger gates in the first century, in this day— I have found, personally, I found no primary source to indicate that that door was called the eye of the needle. You see what I'm saying? I've heard lots of Christians teach that, but I've never found a primary source. And I've looked and looked and looked. So I don't know if those smaller doors in the larger gates were actually referred to as an eye of the needle or not. But I don't think it's necessary because I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Elsewhere, Jesus says this. He says... Um, he says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel, Matthew twenty three thirty four. Well, what is he saying with that idiom? You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I think what he's saying is you're missing the big things and focusing on the little things, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way, I think the eye of the needle is simply an idiom. I think it's simply a figure of speech. Jesus is saying... It's hard. It's hard, just as hard for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than a rich man to get into heaven. It's not impossible. He's just saying it's more difficult. And he's using a camel and a needle as an idiom. Does that make sense? Makes a ton of sense. All right. Yep. So that's what I think that one is. I think it's hard because the rich, as Psalm 49.6 says, they trust in their wealth, mm-hmm. right, and not in the Lord. And I think that's why it's hard for wealthy people to understand that they're sinful before a holy God and ask for forgiveness and receive salvation from the Lord Jesus
0: Christ. Mm -hmm. All right, Jeff, we're down to our last one. We made it. Nice work. We're down to John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, this one could probably have been first up as
1: one of the hardest teachings as well. Because in this one, Uh, one of the common complaints by other belief systems is that, oh, you Christians, you're so exclusive. You think you have the only way to God. Because in reality, there are many roads to God, right? Well, if you actually survey the religious systems around the world, you will find out that they were all, they are all mutually exclusive. Some say you have to believe this. Some say you have to do this. Some say there are Many gods, some say there are one gods, they all have a unique and mutually exclusive way to God, almost all of them do. And so what does Christianity say? Jesus came along and said, I am from the true God, the true God who made everything, heaven and earth, the true God that gives life to everything, and I am from him. In fact, I am him. Philip, don't you recognize me? Right, He said to Philip, or, or Thomas, I am. And, and he Thomas falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. He is the incarnate God in the flesh. And then he says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. There's only one door. There's only one gate. There's a narrow road and few will find it. There's one mediator between God and man, the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved, Acts four twelve. Jesus is the only way. If you want eternal life, God says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the only way, not by works, not by being a good person, not by giving away all your possessions, not by avoiding all the big sins, And being kind to others or whatever, it's by faith in Christ. And so, in a lot of ways, that's probably one of the hardest
0: teachings of all. It's a great hour, Jeff. I really, really enjoyed this. Again, thank you so much for going through 10 of the most difficult teachings of Christ. They're all, uh, if you missed any of this hour, I know you're going to want to head back to MyFaithRadio.com, go to the Afternoons with Bill show page, and it'll be right there. The podcast will be up probably in the next 15 or 20 minutes, I'm guessing, and you can uh, listen to it right from the beginning. Thanks to everyone, Rob Bluey and Dr. Greg Borgon for the day, and of course, my friend Jeff fordorn who is a faithful and regular uh, friend and contributor to the show. I appreciate you so much, Jeff. Thanks, Thanks again. Thanks, Bill. You yep. too. All right, wrap, that wraps up the show. Have a great night, everyone. As you lay your head on that pillow, know that God's working out his great plan in your life, and he loves you. And he's just crazy about you, and I love you, too. I'll see you tomorrow.